Is it getting dry? This is Way Over Our Heads, a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Kenny, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I would do anything for a dry sense of humor, but I've just <laughs> never been smart enough for that, Jim. I really, I've never been smart enough. If I have a sense of humor, it's ne- I've, no one's ever said, you know what, Kenny, he's subtle. He's dry. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> it's not that kind of dry. I'm doing all right. How are you, Jim? You know, I have uh, no complaints right now, although I, I will have to say that looking at our yard, the parkway grass, and um, just kind of a, my general feeling, it, it seems that we are kind of getting dry around here, aren't we? We are. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting time in Minnesota. We we were running this huge precipitation surplus right through the fall and into the early winter. And, you know, the fumes of that have really propelled us all the way till right now. But the fact is, it's been a few months since we've had above normal precipitation. And we have not really been in that wet, persistently stormy pattern that we were in for much of 2019. So if you think it's pretty dry, it's because it is. And in fact, two weeks ago, the United States Drought Monitor introduced the first kind of chunk of what's uh, called abnormally dry conditions. It's the lowest level that shows up on the U.S. Drought Monitor. So it's not drought. But, you know, west central Minnesota, kind of a a southwest to northeast swath from Big Stone and Traverse counties up into the Fergus Falls area and a little bit east and north of there. They got the first chunk of kind of abnormally dry conditions designated by the drought monitor. Then we got some precipitation last week and that kind of settled things down. But, you know, it's been another, depending on where you are, another five to seven days without precipitation and we had some really nice 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 weather in between but that dried things out i mean those low humidities on friday and on saturday and even on sunday i just pulled all of the water right out of the out of the vegetation and out of the soils so you know it's it's certainly no drought but you're right jim it is dry people are noticing it gardeners are asking for for water can we get some rain please it's actually been okay for farmers, but it hasn't been ideal for a lot of other purposes. So Kenny, you and I have talked about a term before called evapotranspiration. And as I walk down Minneapolis parkways these days, I see trees beginning to come out and bloom. And as a seasonal allergy sufferer, which is something that certainly garners some interesting glances these days if you sneeze, um, and someone who is sensitive to trees, I can tell we're going to see some leaves very soon. We've seen some on some of the trees now, but there'll be a lot more in the next few days. As plants begin to Uh, come to life again in the spring with new growth. How does that influence the amount of moisture in the atmosphere? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And so, and this kind of gets into one of the interesting nuances about, about dry spells anyway. You know, generally, so I'll just back up and say, we do have a dry season and a wet season. And our wet season is basically May through September, which you might note is roughly what we consider to be our growing season also. And yeah, you're right. Around the Twin Cities, you certainly are seeing leaves, uh, you know, springing forth. And it's, it's really nice to see after, you know, after being shut in, 
around after kind of a long winter. <laughs> and for those of you in northern Minnesota, you know, wait a week or so, and that wave will be sweeping up to the north also. Usually what we find, you know, our, our most humid air mass arrives kind of in late June through early August, and that's typically when you've got all the pieces of the machine are running well. So you've got the trees, you've got crops, you've got all the other plants and grasses and all of that evapotranspiration, which is just moisture being taken out of the ground and run through the plants and then into the atmosphere. It, it definitely makes a difference, although right now we're early enough in the process that even though you see some some nice leaves on, on some of the trees, they're really not conducting much water through those systems and not putting all that much additional water into the atmosphere. That starts to become noticeably different. Usually in the southern Minnesota, basically the second half of May is when you can really tell and things start to look lush and abundant and the air just changes. At that time, Sometimes, I mean, and you can't, it's hard to predict, but that's kind of when our circulation pattern begins to shift too. And we switch from what had been winter and spring into, you know, more like late spring and early summer. And I wouldn't be surprised if at that time we just start seeing more precipitation. And sometimes, and I'm not predicting this, I'm just saying sometimes droughts or building droughts end with the green up of May because you're kind of in a precipitation deficit and you're at a time of year where it's hard to generate that precipitation. And then all of a sudden, everything turns green. There's much more moisture in the air and it's easier to seed building storms and, and turn them into something that's big enough to overcome the small, relatively small deficits that you can build up during April. So that's a long answer, but it definitely, I mean, all of those really humid days have to occur when we have lush vegetation. You just never will, well, I shouldn't say never, but we have not observed something like a 75 degree dew point uh, anywhere in Minnesota before the green up. Probably some of the most humid conditions that you would see before you've got leaves on trees might be, you know, dew points in the, in the mid 60s. And that even that would be extraordinary. And, and, you know, the kind of thing that maybe we've seen maybe once every several years, uh, maybe even less frequent than that. So a strong tie between the vegetation that we all look forward to seeing more of and the arrival of moisture in the air. And that makes the whole dry period, sort of droughty period uh, relationship a little bit fuzzy too, because uh, sometimes with all you need is vegetation to show up and whatever drought you were building ends. Uh, but then again, there are other times, if you remember the summer of 1988, Jim, didn't matter that it turned into May and then June, it just stayed dry. So uh, it remains to be seen if this is a, a, dry, a dry pattern that is built to last, or if it's one that breaks down uh, with the arrival of more moisture from the plants. Yeah, we're going to see a little precipitation early in the week this week, but then it looks like it's going to be fairly dry and cool, correct? Yeah, so that's the other thing. If we're building a good precipitation deficit, and there are areas that are running two to three inches below normal for the last couple months, fortunately, we're <laughs> this is double edged right here. So we've got a cold front that's going to come through. You probably don't want a cold front right now, do you, Jim? I do not. No, not at no. all. 
Yeah, we could survey the listeners. How many of you would like a cold front? Oh, the answer is zero. <laughs> yes, uh, it was a quick pop survey. But there is a pretty strong cold front that's going to come through basically uh, with the precipitation Monday and Tuesday. It's going to knock us back where you know, we're going to look at frost in northeastern Minnesota, possibly parts of east central Minnesota. I wouldn't even be surprised to see frost later this week in the outlying, you know, kind of low-lying and outlying areas not far from the metro, even into western Wisconsin. So cold air mass, it's kind of going to just park here for the next 10 days. Good news is, you know, it's not going to dry us out too much. So whatever moisture we don't get isn't going to be exacerbated by, uh, by you know, really hot weather. So that's a plus, I suppose. The downside is it's, you know, it's May, sometimes the nicest time of the year right now, and we're going to spend it substantially cooler than average, you know, for the next week at least. Uh, yeah, the, the precipitation that we're looking at would be especially, though, I mean, this has changed a little bit. So if, if somebody had checked a forecast on Saturday, it looked like Tuesday was going to be a washout almost statewide. Now it really looks like it's only going to be really wet along the western one to two tiers of counties, and especially in southwestern Minnesota, so Marshall, Pipestone. Uh, it will be wet, but not as wet as you get over towards Redwood Falls, Mankato, maybe up, up towards Fergus Falls. It's not clear how how much of a dent this will put in the uh, abnormally dry conditions, which are centered, you know, closer to Alexandria and Morris. But uh, it would be nice to see, you know, a half inch to an inch of precipitation there, which uh, that would certainly help. But it looks like East Central Minnesota is not going to get much out of this. And so we might see dry conditions begin expanding that way. And then, yeah, cool weather, temperatures in the 50s, maybe some 60s, but you know, lows in the 30s and 40s and even cooler in uh, parts of northern Minnesota. Well, we are marking the 55th anniversary of the Twin Cities' worst tornado outbreak, May 6th, 1965. Has it been that long? It, <laughs> it seems like yesterday, I'm sure. Uh, for some people who suffered the worst of it, uh, the memories uh, are quite uh, persistent. And uh, I'm sure every time this date rolls around, they think back to that night. I mean, if you think of our podcast, and then you think of all the discussions we've had before this podcast, including somewhere we were we were you know recording for other purposes, this has to be our most visited topic. It's probably hard for any listeners out there who weren't around in 1965, and that includes me, by the way, as old as I sound with my cartoon voice. Uh, I'm really a spring chicken. I'm only, I'm only uh, 14 years old. I am older than that. But I was not around in 1965, but people should know the basics. This was, as you said, this was the worst tornado outbreak in the Twin Cities. And in terms of outbreaks, in terms of its, uh, you know, kind of what it did in a relatively small area, I, you'd put this up with just about anything else on record in Minnesota. You know, a lot of our big kind of iconic tornadoes, the, the so-called Mayo Clinic tornado, the Fergus Falls tornado and the Sox Center tornado, those were all one tornado, you know, one single, probably part of a larger outbreak that wasn't well observed, but it was all the damage done by one tornado. 
as you know, Jim, the, the 1965 tornadoes, there were many of them. Some of them crossed the paths of earlier tornadoes. So it was a real mess. And these were not small. These were big. So again, I'm not saying this was our worst tornado outbreak in history in, in the whole state of Minnesota, but it's up there. It's up there with the Northwoods outbreak, um, the one that hit the Lake Roosevelt uh, and outing area in, um, that was 1969, and, uh, or 68, I always get those two mixed up. But uh, it's a it was a bad one. Yeah, nineteen sixty nine, uh, I believe sixty nine. Yeah, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, and it, so but this was you know nineteen sixty five. This was a bad one. Um, you can recount for listeners the the kind of uh, significance of it in terms of the civil defense sirens and in terms of people's readiness. Yeah, it was an interesting period because uh, the civil defense sirens had been used for just test purposes. And uh, if you heard the civil defense sirens, you were immediately going to think of World War III, nuclear Armageddon, whatever. But on this particular evening, May 6, 1965, when the folks at the then U.S. Weather Bureau, now the National Weather Service, saw what was literally coming, and according to radar heading into the Twin Cities metro area, they made the decision to activate those sirens, and that got people certainly uh, to snap to attention, and they turned to the local media and um, got information. So uh, it, it was certainly a wake-up call for us. Uh, we had only associated those sirens with testing before. Right, yeah, I mean, and what a... Kind of fortuitous because you would hear the sirens in 1965 and you would think, okay, get the hell inside now and find more information. Right. And, uh, you know, this is something that unfortunately we would love if that was the response right now. But, you know, now it's, oh, check my phone. It's probably a test. Oh, this doesn't apply to me. But what worked back then was that people were trained very well hear the sirens get into shelter seek more information and so they did and you know I, I we're not we're not doing any advertising for anyone when we say the market was dominated at the time by wcco 830 on the am dial and everybody tuned in and they had a pretty good system in place for relaying information at the time taking in information from the weather bureau and also from listeners, and then kind of coordinating that simultaneously on air and, and providing pretty good information back to the listeners. So, yeah, what a, what a different event from anything we could ever expect now in terms of not, not the weather. We could certainly see that exact same or very similar type of weather setup, but you kind of have to think that human readiness and the, the coordination of information just wouldn't be where, where it was then, which is an astounding thing to say 55 years later. It's pretty impressive when you listen to the WCCO radio coverage of that night uh, and what they were able to do with a relatively primitive system. It was interesting because the only reason they had all the phone lines available is we had had severe spring flooding and they had established a flood service center with multiple incoming phone lines. And for whatever reason, uh, they had not disconnected those lines yet, which turned out to be fortuitous since they were able to use those to get calls from listeners. And what they would do is they would get at least a couple of listeners on the line simultaneously who had two different viewpoints of a particular tornado, and they were able to 
triangulate its location with um, pretty astounding accuracy. Uh, so what we're going to do at wayoverourheads.com, we'll put a series of links in for the 50th anniversary. Kenny, you and I were involved in a project where we animated the radar film for that night, which was a series of uh, 35 millimeter still photographs taken about at one minute intervals. And by animating it, you could see how the various storm cells moved. You could actually see the hook echoes develop and they were very, very pronounced. And uh, then we were able to coordinate that with the tapes of the WCCO radio coverage. And it was pretty amazing to take a look at what the listeners were reporting and what was showing up on the radar at the time. But Todd Krause, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the National Weather Service, put together a great uh, page back for the 50th anniversary. The link is still active. We can link to that. It's an interesting history of the event. You can see the radar film animated, and uh, we'll also send you a link to the radiotapes.com page, uh, which has an excellent archive of all of the CCO radio coverage that night. Yeah, I, I actually highly recommend for any of you, either history buffs or severe weather buffs, or anyone who just kind of, you know, used to get the chills when you'd, you know, be watching television and the, and there would be a, a an emergency break-in for the weather or anything like that. Some of the recordings are are quite gripping, you know, as people are, as they're reporting in real time what's going on. It was, and also you, of course, get to hear the way that broadcasters used to speak, which is always fascinating <laughs> to me, Jim. It's, I could never do it justice. I wish I were better at impersonations, but it's a it's a very clipped manner of speaking that you just don't hear much uh, anymore. And another thing, you know, when we talk about all the things that came together, and there were some things that didn't work out very well, but, you know, the death toll was kept in the low teens. And for the number of tornadoes and the amount of population those tornadoes had access to, and you know the 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 relative infancy of the uh, of our awareness and understanding of tornadoes at the time, we fared pretty well because these were big tornadoes that were you know rated after the fact as as you know some of them were F four or EF four equivalents and those are huge powerful destructive tornadoes and so but other things that went really well you had as you mentioned the coordination of the media. You know, uh, everyone sort of getting information from the same place, people knowing where to go to shelter and seek more information. But we also had high visibility because it had been a cold spring with a lot of snow in March and kind of a late start to spring. So the, the trees were not greened up yet. And so you can see a lot farther when there aren't leaves everywhere. And also suburbia, the area that was hit hardest, was in some areas relatively new yet. So the trees were also fairly small. So you would hear reports from places like Fridley and uh, the St. Anthony area, village of St. Anthony, and from even northeast Minneapolis and um, Golden Valley, you would hear reports of people you know, who could see things that were miles and miles away from their homes. So you just have to imagine that's only possible with smaller trees and few leaves, fewer visual obstructions, and also less built up neighborhoods at the time. So really interesting convergence of events that uh, led to the uh, higher amount of readiness than you might expect for, for something, you know, 55 years ago. And once again, if you'd like to get more information about that night, uh, please go to our website, wayoverourheads.com. 
Well, Kenny, so we're looking forward basically to below normal temperatures for the next several days, correct? You're welcome. And I'll be back next week. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not great for uh, outdoor activities, but, you know, this will keep you sheltering in place. Dang it. Um, yeah, it looks like, you know, if you look at the Climate Prediction Center, they're basically uh, expecting that the next two weeks will be dominated by cool weather, not particularly wet, uh, just kind of cool conditions and uh, the high chances of mostly temperatures being below normal. So I'm looking right now at the eight to 14 day forecast and there's uh, over Minnesota, 50 to 60% chance that uh, temperatures will be below the normal during that period between eight and 14 days from now. And on the six to 10 day forecast, you know, basically a 70 to 80% chance of temperatures being below the climatological averages during that time. Doesn't look like a lot of precipitation. So not a cool, wet period, just a cool period. And uh, the good news, again, being that at least it won't be so hot that we're just desiccating all of the, uh, you know, dwindling moisture in our soils here. So I'm always a silver lining guy, right? I like that, Kenny. You have to look for the proverbial silver lining, indeed. Well, this has been way over our heads. A weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Kenny... Have a wonderful week, and we'll check in with you again next week. Very good. Thank you. You have a good week too, Jim.